We continue our series in the Servant Songs of Isaiah. That's our Lenten series. We're looking at these four songs. We're breaking each one of them into two parts and are taking time to understand what kind of Savior Jesus is. So let me read to you the second half of the first song. This is Isaiah 42. We looked at the first four verses last week. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Isaiah 42, 5 through 9. Let me read it to you. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word. Now, we learned last week that the servant, this is Isaiah, is writing these poems under the inspiration of God to, to tell us about the servant of the Lord, this mysterious figure, as you read Isaiah, but of course, from our point of view, having seen the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we know the servant is Jesus. This is who God is sending to, to resolve our human predicament of sin. We're not able to, to get out of our own sinfulness, so God sends the servant, sends this person to save us, to rescue us, to change us. And so we have these beautiful poems, songs in Isaiah describing who he is. So last week we learned that he's a gentle ruler. Yes, he comes to rule and restore justice, but he's not going to do it the way we expect a human ruler, an earthly ruler, to do it. And then today, we're looking at the second part of the same song that tells us that when the servant comes, he will bring a new beginning. So we'll explore together what kind of newness this servant brings. And our outline is very simple. Let's look at new creation first, secondly at new covenant, and thirdly at new life. New creation, new covenant, and new life. So look at verse 5 with me. Before the Lord describes the servant's mission, which we will look at, the Lord describes himself. He establishes who he is and why he can say what he says. He says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all that exists. The world and everything in it would not have come into existence if it wasn't for him, and it cannot exist without him. So the Lord declares, this is who I am. I am the creator and sustainer of all that exists which should make us pay attention to what he's saying. Now look at the end of our passage, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my, my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, 
I tell you of them. So the point is clear when you see the mission of the servant sandwiched between these two declarations of creation. First, God says, I'm the creator and sustainer of all that exists. And then he says, I'm going to make new things. And in between that is the mission of the servant. So the point is clear. God the creator is ready to create again through the work of his servant Jesus. That was what he's saying. Just as the world was created through the word, so will the world be recreated through the word. And the word is the Lord Jesus Christ. John tells us very clearly, and hitting on the same themes in the first chapter of his gospel, John 1, from the very beginning, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the first creation. And then he goes on in verse 12 and on, talk about this new creation that this word enfleshed now brings. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, the word, who believed in his name. Remember, in Isaiah, God was proclaiming his name. He gave the right to, be, to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Creation, new creation, and in the midst of it is the servant, this Jesus, this God-made human who will bring this new creation into the world. Now notice the theme of glory here, both in John 1 and in Isaiah 42, 8. There's this theme of glory in creation and in the new creation. So what is the connection between the original creation, renewal of creation through the servant, and God's refusal to share his glory with any idols? Well, biblically, glory is the expression of who God is. Now, typically, it's visualized as this bright light, this brilliance. In the Old Testament, when you see glory, it's, it's this bright light that shines, that almost blinds people. That's glory because it comes out of God. It's an expression of who He is. He's showing Himself to us. And so the world created out of God's own nature, God's own Trinitarian love, the world is God's glory. I mean, that's why we're moved when we see his creation. We move to praise him because we see a reflection of who he is. We see his expression. So the world is his glory. It's as if it shines from him. It's his brilliance. It's his expression. Now, of course, it's his glory as long as the world reflects its creator. As long as it stays in the right relationship with him, that's as long as it's glorious. When the relationship is broken and the reflection is distorted, God's glory is diminished. The world is no longer reflecting God as he is, but actually is portraying some other God. God's glory is diminished and it grieves God. Now what's even worse is, 
God's glory is often attributed to others besides God. Other beings and objects are put in the place of God and treated as if they are responsible for our lives, as if they are our creators, as if they are our sustainers. And any object of worship, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's a person or a thing or an idea, any object of worship, if it is not God, is a usurper of God's glory. And so God says, my glory I give to no other. But the people made in his own image, the people who are his glory, an expression of who he is, have rejected him and have filled their hearts and homes with idols. So how can God restore his glory? How can God look in at his original creation that is supposed to be full of his glory and now is full of idols? How can he restore this creation to himself and restore his glory? Well, he can do that by restoring his relationship to the world through a new work of creation in Jesus Christ. God is not willing to abandon his creation. It is he who sustains its life even now. And so he's sending his servant to renew his original creation and to reclaim it as his glory. The big news of the first servant song is that God is about to begin creating again. And it will be glorious. This is what God is saying, that in the servant, in the mission of Jesus, a new creation is coming. And God will restore and renew, and he will reclaim his glory from all our idols. He declares that new things will happen. In fact, he tells us new things will happen before they happen, so we know he is doing it. It's not accidental. He's predicting things that he's about to do. The former things have already happened. He created once before. We know what it's like. We know his power. We know his glory based on that. And now he says, I will create again. New creation is about to begin, Isaiah proclaims. And the servant of the Lord will bring it about. That sets up a certain anticipation, right? So how is Jesus doing it? How is he bringing this new creation about? Now look at verses 6 and 7, which describe the servant's mission. This is the Lord speaking to Jesus, to his servant. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Meaning he's calling Jesus according to his righteous purposes, for the right things. He's commissioning the Son to do his will. I will take you by the hand and keep you. The whole Trinity is involved in this new creation, just like the whole Trinity was involved in the first creation. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. The servant is sent to be a covenant for the people. That's Isaiah's summary. The servant comes as a covenant for the people. Now, a covenant is an agreement between God and people. And here the Lord promises to make a new covenant, a new agreement that is in line with his new creative activity in Christ. 
Now, if you've read the scriptures, you know this idea of old and new covenants, that God makes different agreements, that God is pushing forth his, his purposes through various movements in his redemptive work. And so there is this idea that a new covenant is supposed to come, and the prophets talk about it. For example, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. Now under the old covenant, the Lord rescued his people out of Egypt and gave them the law, but the people didn't keep the law and they were taken into exile to Babylon. And now the Lord is ready to make a new covenant. Under the new covenant, the law will be placed into their hearts and a new relationship with God will be established. And this new covenant will not only apply to Israel, it will apply to all the nations. God is creating new things through Jesus. And that is why in John 8, verse 12, Jesus proclaims in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see how Jesus is sent to usher new creation into this world through a new agreement, through a new covenant that God is making with us? Now, the difference between the old and the new covenant is that the new covenant, covenant produces internal transformation. That's the difference. There's an internal change that God is now producing in people who follow Jesus. Now, two things happen that are both internal and transformational when a person encounters Jesus. First thing that happens is that their spiritual sight is restored. Their spiritual sight is restored. Jesus is a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Now, of course, Jesus restored many people's physical sight. You can read in the Gospels lots of stories of people's physical sight being restored. But here it's talking about spiritual blindness. Because in our sinful state, apart from Christ, we do not see our need to be rescued by him. Most people live under the illusion that they're fine. We're fine. Most people live in a perceived reality that they are doing okay. Maybe they can do a little bit better, but they're fine. In reality, they are separated from God. They are lost. They are dying. But because our spiritual sight is not right, we don't see it. That's the tragic state that we find ourselves in, that 
not only are we lost, but we don't know we're lost. So we're not seeking to be helped and to be rescued. We simply think we're okay. Thomas Chalmers is a 1800s uh, Scottish preacher has this great illustration about the human sinful condition. He, he imagines a fire raging in an apartment building. But people are sleeping, each in their own bed, unaware that they're about to be consumed by the fire. This is what Chalmers says. They, in their airy chase of their own imagination, may be fully engrossed among the pictures and the agitations of a dream and be inwardly laughing or crying or striving or pursuing or rejoicing and that while the flame is at their door, which in a few minutes is to seize upon and to destroy them. Just a great, vivid picture of people without Christ. Not only is the fire of God's judgment about to engulf us, but we, we don't know it's coming. We don't believe it. We don't see it. Because we're dreaming. We're so consumed with the imagination of our hearts, with our own idolatry, with our own views of the world. We don't know we're about to be consumed. So we need to wake up. We need to wake up to the reality of sin, reality of God's judgment, reality of our idolatry, reality of our need to be rescued. And so God sends Jesus to open the eyes that are blind. Part of what Jesus came to do is, is to, to help us see what we are, to reveal reality to us, to help us recognize that we are lost and dying. I mean, sin does weird things to us. I'll share an illustration that is very vivid to me and is my present experience. So I had COVID this week, as you know. I'm past my quarantine period. I'm wearing a mask. I'm being careful. I don't think I'm contagious anymore. I've gone through all the necessary steps. I don't feel that bad anymore. But yesterday I was eating eggs and I put some hot sauce on my eggs and it tasted awful. I mean, I still ate it. I told my wife. I pushed, I pushed through... <laughs> I still ate it, but the hot sauce was just, oh, it was, it was terrible. There was just a weird new taste to it. I like hot sauce. I mean, that's usually a good taste to me. But because of the virus, I'm tasting something that it's not there. It's not the right taste. I can't really, oh, can't really eat it. It's weird, isn't it? I know what it is. I know what it tastes like, but it's not, it's not what it tastes like to me right now. I mean, th that's our experience of sin. We live in this weird reality. This sinful virus has infected our hearts, and so we see things not the way they really are. And so we need to be awakened. We need to be healed and set right so we can actually experience reality the way it is. And so when a person is converted, when we come to Christ... And when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives us, restores the spiritual side to us, we begin to see things as they are. And finally, we can know reality. C.S. Lewis said that, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. 
Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. He's saying that Christianity makes sense because it gives me the right view of reality. It is real. The gospel is real. But because I believe in the gospel, now I can see everything else the way it is. Now, I don't know how you feel about conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and during this time of Lent, I, I think a lot of us are more open. I mean, we, we were just praying a prayer of confess, silent confession after Sidney's testimony, and, and I was convicted of a very specific thing. And I don't like to think of myself in those terms. The Lord showed me something in my heart that is not a desirable trait, something that I despise, in fact, in other people. It's uncomfortable, but it is so good. It is so good that the Lord shows us who we are. So I've learned to appreciate the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I've learned to value when the Holy Spirit opens something up about me and he says, this is what you really like, because it's real. I mean, this is what the hot sauce actually tastes like. I may pretend in my imagination construct all sorts of rationalizations, but the Holy Spirit comes and he says, but this is what it is. This is real. And this is part of this new covenant that, that God has established in Christ. When he comes, he actually tells us the way things really are. And the Holy Spirit allows us to see things, including our own sinful hearts, including the world, including everything else around us, and including God himself in the right light. That's why Jesus is the light to the nations. He shows us the way things really are. He restores our spiritual sight. Now, another thing that happens when a person encounters Christ is that our spiritual life is restored. Not only do we see that we're dead, not only do we see how good this new life may be, but we're actually given that new life now by grace. Isaiah says that, that the servant came to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, to put it in the New Testament terms, we are born again. We're born of God, as we already read in John 1.12. We're brought out of our old life and into a new one. So there is a transformation happens that in our spiritual perception, but there's also a spiritual condition. There's a spiritual state that has changed as well. We used to sit in darkness, prisoners in the dungeon of our own sins. But Jesus rescues us. He liberates us. He breaks us free. He leads us out. And we are different. Now, Christians are actually possess different natures. We're not, like, we're not like we used to be. Darkness symbolizes our guilt before God. Symbolizes our hopelessness. It symbolizes our helplessness, our bondage to death. That's our condition without Christ. But when Christ's light comes, there comes forgiveness and salvation and freedom and eternal life. God is creating again in Christ. Now, it's ongoing, and it will result in a completely new heaven and completely new earth, and we'll be there. That's the end of it. There will be a consummation of all this, but we're in the process of this new creation that's already started in Christ. This is what the servant came to do. 
And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you are part of the new covenant, if you've encountered Christ, you are already a new creation. You're already part of this new creative activity of God. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then Paul says, all this is from God. God is doing this. Through Christ, he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul is saying there's the new thing that's happening. And as we tell people about Christ, they can come into a relationship with him, into the new covenant by grace, and they, have, they can experience new creation. So are you in Christ? Are you part of the new creation of God? Has your spiritual sight been restored? Or are you still dreaming and laughing inwardly and running inwardly and the fire is at the door ready to consume you? Has your spiritual sight been restored? Has your spiritual life been restored? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been reconciled to God through Christ who died for your sins and rose for your justification? Now, it's all grace. It's all God's doing. Just like the first creation, God speaks and it happens. So God speaks into your life and it happens. It's not because you have studied and figured out what the reality is. No, it's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. It's not that you pulled yourself together and you said, I'm going to do better and I'm going to be a different kind of person. No, a new nature has been given to you by the Holy Spirit. It's all grace, all a gift. Have you received it? And finally, new life. For those who are in Christ, this is what this new life looks like. First, there's a new hope. We receive a new hope. When the world is preoccupied with death, God in Christ offers new life. When the world is preoccupied with the end, God in Christ offers hope. Let me give an example of that. In 2016, medical assistance in dying, abbreviated as MAID, was legalized in Canada. Now, since 2021... Euthanasia is Canada's sixth leading cause of death, accounting for 3% of all deaths. So 3% of Canadians today, or at least as of 2021, are dying by medical assistance. Now, at first, the program was applied to the terminally ill, but it has since been expanded to include those with mental illness and disabilities. Expanding the program to children is currently under consideration. It's presented under the guise of dignity and choice. But it is a horrific, yet utterly logical, extension of a self-centered, godless view of existence. We should be outraged, but we should not be surprised that that's where some of the ideas and values we've embraced lead. I don't want to sound 
too matter-of-fact and too crude, perhaps, but this is what, what it says. This is what it means. If your life is hard, if you don't have anyone to care for you, if you are a burden to others, if you are not happy, if you are struggling well, you might as well just die. That's what it says. There's nothing better for you out there than a quiet, dignified, painless death. It's an utterly hopeless outlook that betrays the idolatry of independence and comfort and productivity. Now, these ideas of independence and comfort and self-sufficiency and blazing your own course in life and doing what you want, those things become idols that become idols who devour their worshipers. And so it results in programs like this. But things are different under the new covenant in Christ. The Lord does not share his glory with idols. And the Lord is not constricted by death. He's the father of Jesus, who was born into the world of suffering, who himself suffered and died, and yet he was raised to give new life to all who follow him. That's our Lord. And so he is creating again. He is given life again. He's not saying that the best you can do in this life is live as you want and then quietly die. That's not what the Lord promises to us. He promises life everlasting. Life through death. Life beyond death. Life with a death that's meaningful. Listen to Jen Pollock Michelle. I quoted from her book a few, years, a few Sundays ago. And I think she's right on as she talks about beginnings in life. She says, if Christ is the incarnate beginning... Right, this is, this is God starting to create again through his servant by sending him and Jesus becoming human. If Christ is the incarnate beginning, it must be true that God is never as impatient as we are to close a case, to call it a wrap, to declare a thing ended. In the strange world we call the kingdom, God can lean over dead things and find a pulse. The gospel message is fundamentally hopeful. It's fundamentally hopeful because it tells us that death is not the end. It's not what we are to look forward to. Hope is an essential thing to a Christian, just as essential as faith and, and love because by hope we know that death is not a solution. It's an enemy conquered by Christ. Death is not the end because we have been given eternal life. And as Christians, we do not live in fear of death, but we walk in the newness of life. Now, this is one of the implications. If you believe that God has sent Jesus to usher this new creation under the new covenant into this world, that means you live in hope. And you confront the world's ideas like euthanasia and other things like that. 
Now, secondly, this new life is a life of new beginnings, plural, new beginnings. Now, listen to Jen Pollock Michelle again. She says, she says, it seems that the biblical story is particularly fond of beginnings. I think she wrote that when she was reading through one of the genealogies in the Old Testament. To think of all the gospel movement between Genesis and John, between, between John and Revelation, is to notice how God is in the business of fresh starts. It's to see that from beginning to beginning to beginning, the story of God skips like a stone. I love this image of God skipping stones over the water as he begins and begins and begins and begins again. That's his new creation at work. It's a series of new beginnings. Now, I spent a considerable amount of time today on describing a person's new beginning at conversion. That is the moment. That is the beginning of all the other beginnings. But it's also true that our new life in Christ is full of other beginnings. It continues to provide other opportunities to begin again. The story of God skips like a stone from one beginning to another, not only in the Bible as you read it, but in every life in Christ. The Christian life is the story of God skipping stones of fresh starts and new mercies. Now, Americans are used to the idea of second chances. It's easy to transport this thinking into Christianity, to say that Christianity is about second chances. But Christ offers something different, something more than a second chance. Now, a second chance is a politician who had been caught in a scandal, wanting to stay in office and promising to never do it again. That's a second chance, right? Trust me, this time I'm not going to do it again. It's about forgiveness. It's about trust. It's about resolve to do better. But a life of new beginnings in Christ is not a second chance. It's like a child learning to walk. The parents are not giving her a second chance after she's lost her balance and fallen down. Parenting is not about second chances. It's about new beginnings. Parents are patiently, lovingly, with great determination, helping her get up and try again, and again, and again, until the child is able to walk, and to run, and to skip, and to ride a bike. Now, do you see the difference? There's the human idea of a second chance. I will forgive you this time. I will give you another opportunity to impress me. And there's the idea of new beginnings with God. I will patiently teach you to walk. I will patiently help you change until you become the kind of person I want you to be. That's the difference. God's ways are always much bigger than our ways. Whatever idea we may have, it may fit into God's idea, but it's never as big as his idea is. He always surprises us with more. And that's why in this passage, he's talking about a new creation. He's talking about a new covenant. He's talking about a new life. None of this is slightly improved. None of this is a little bit fixed and adjusted. It's a new thing. He's doing a new thing. Now, you may be discouraged today 
because you have fallen again and again, because you've realized that your sin runs deeper than you thought and your unbelief is greater than you could imagine. That happens when we reflect on ourselves and given the spiritual sight through the Holy Spirit, we see ourselves as we really are. It's easy to get discouraged. You may feel that you have run out of second chances with God, and you have. But the life you have in Christ now is a life of new beginnings. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning because great is His faithfulness. Now, you may be stumbling now, but take heart. You will yet run. You will yet skip. You will yet ride a bike because God will teach you and God will make you into the person He wants you to be, into a new person who belongs in His new creation. Christian life is a life of repentance. We are convicted and we repent. We confess and we are restored. We turn away from sin and we change. We grow because we live under the new covenant of Christ and our life is full of new beginnings. And finally, very briefly, this new life is marked by a new song. I'm reaching to the next portion. I'm reaching to the next verse, verse 10 that reads like this. And this is the response that Isaiah wants us to have to this declaration of new creation under the new covenant, the new life coming through Christ. What's our response? Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. The servant has come into the world full of idols. And he is restoring God's glory to the world. He's creating anew. He died so we can live. He rose from the dead to give us a life of hope, a life of repentance and new beginnings. And he's coming again to set everything right forever. Now, what can we do in response to this news? We, we can praise him. We can sing a new song, not one of our old songs, but a new song written for this servant who has come to rescue us and to give us a new life. So we'll do that. We will sing, and we'll come to the table. And as you come to the table, you are welcome at this table if you are a Christian. If you've been given a new spiritual sight, if you've been given a new spiritual life, this is your table, this is your family, this is your kingdom, and this is your God. But if you are not a Christian, go to him, go to Jesus, and embrace him. Pray that he will rescue you and he will.